0: In the previous episode of Better Mind Better Life, I talked about loneliness. Psychologists agree that it is, quote, an awful, noxious, psychological state, end quote, that if left unchecked can wreak havoc in our lives. What's more, it is a disturbingly common problem. At any given moment in time, 22% of Americans are struggling with feelings of loneliness. Sometimes, even to the point of despair. And there's the authority of Scripture as well. The Bible itself makes it clear in the book of Genesis that God created us for relationships. It's not good for people to be alone, lonely. So this desire for connection with others drives our behaviors. Now let's camp there for a minute and focus on that phrase, drives our behaviors. No talk about human drive or motivation is complete without looking at something called self-determination theory. In the mid-1980s, professors Edward L. Deci and Richard Ryan wrote a book introducing self-determination theory to the world. Now, Since then, a global community of scholars from virtually every sub-discipline of psychology, from neuroscience to social psychology, has made self-determination theory one of the most widely researched and applied theories in the field of psychology. Now, when we talk about the psychological study and research into human motivation, it's important to understand that, historically, motivation science was dominated by what's known as a behaviorist approach. And that's for at least a 100 years. This was the world of people like Ivan Pavlov. Think Pavlov's dog. John B. Watson, Jean Piaget, Carl Rogers, B.F. Skinner, Albert Bandura. Behaviorists were preoccupied with how external factors such as rewards and punishments, etc, could control our behavior. The key word obviously being control. In contrast to the behaviorist focused on outer sources of motivation, self-determination theory's foundational concern is the self. The theory says that the primary task of the self is to assimilate, coordinate, and regulate inputs from both external factors and internal environments. In other words, drives, emotions, and needs. In a recent interview, the now 80-year-old professor D.C. said that when most people think about motivation, they're most often thinking about the behaviorist, controlled, or external version of motivation. But he and his team of researchers have found that when people are more self-motivated, their performance, their willingness, their engagement, all of these things tend to increase. Their research has led to consistent findings of the importance of support for three basic psychological needs. Autonomy, competence, and relatedness. Now, those three needs, research shows, are reliable predictors of positive experience and wellness. And when these basic psychological needs are frustrated, psychological growth, integrity, and wellness is all hindered. So even though these basic needs are not something we typically set as goals for ourselves, I mean, I doubt very many people have, quote, gained more autonomy, end quote, on their list of things they'd like to achieve in life. The satisfaction or frustration of these needs does lead us to behave differently and radically influences, both consciously and subconsciously, the activities or goals we pursue and engage in. These three basic drives have been studied and verified within families, classrooms, teams, organizations, clinics, and even entire cultures. So let me give you DC and Ryan's definition or the gist of each of those three basic needs. Competence is the need to feel confident and effective in relation to whatever it is that you're doing. We want to feel like we have the skills required to do the work ourselves and not be confronted with tasks that we don't understand. Relatedness is the need to be connected with others in such a way that we both feel cared for by others and we ourselves care for others. Autonomy is the desire to have the freedom of making our own choices and To not be forced to do something that we just simply don't want to do. To summarize, self-determination theory argues that our behaviors and decisions are driven by these three basic needs, competence, relatedness, and autonomy. So keep that in mind and I'll come back to it in just a minute. Right now, I'd like you to imagine for just a moment a continuum, a straight line on a page. At one end of that continuum is loneliness. At the other end is what psychologists call belonging. In Abraham Maslow's classic hierarchy of needs, he places a sense of love and belonging right at the heart of that hierarchy. In fact, most theories of psychological needs and human motivation include some idea of belonging as critical. I mean, think about it. At some point, we've all experienced the feeling of being out of place, whether it was in high school cafeterias, or on a college campus, or in a job interview with a potential boss. And when we feel out of place, when our sense of belonging is threatened, then that discomfort and self-doubt can have far-reaching effects, even in ways we wouldn't typically think of. Strangely enough, when we aren't wrestling with feelings of loneliness, it can be hard to make ourselves understand or even remember how crippling it can be, much in the same way that under normal circumstances, when our bellies are full, it's hard to imagine how bad true hunger can feel. In fact, I don't imagine it would be much of a stretch to think of the drive for belonging as a hunger for connection. When that hunger is satisfied, we sort of temporarily forget what it felt like to crave. But when it isn't satisfied, it's hard to think about anything else except our loneliness. Like a soul hunger, it becomes a gnawing pain that's constantly driving us to do something about it. It's even worse when we feel purposefully excluded, rejected, or ostracized. In fact, some scientists have discovered that the same exact regions of the brain associated with the experience of physical pain are also activated when people experience social ostracism. I mean, that really speaks to the power of that so-called belonging hunger to direct our choices. Now These feelings of belonging hunger seem to be heightened during pre and adolescence when we're trying to figure out, as artist Michael W. Smith once sang, our place in this world. In fact, one of the biggest predictors of teen reckless behaviors and mental illness is a lack of connection and belongingness. But, It can be just as powerful a hunger in those times of life when we're making transitions from one social world to the next, like, say, a new job or moving to a new city, etc. These transitions are marked by belonging uncertainty. Can I make it? Do I belong here? Will I be accepted here? And that brings me back to self-determination theory, competence, relatedness, and autonomy and how it might fit into this loneliness and belonging hunger continuum. If competence, relatedness, and autonomy are basic psychological drivers for us all, competence in community, then, is the need to feel that we are able to contribute to a group in some meaningful way, based on our own skills, abilities, knowledge, etc. If we don't feel competent in a group, our sense of belonging will be diminished. Relatedness in community, then, would include a need to feel connectedness. The group makes me feel that I'm a part of it. And support. People from the group care about me, even those who don't know me very well. And solidarity. Members of the group help me when I'm in need. Now, if we don't feel that connect, support, solidarity in a group, our sense of belonging will be diminished. Autonomy in community, then, would include the sense that other group members accept me, even if I don't always follow the unspoken rules of the group itself. To at least some degree, I'm allowed the freedom to bring my own style, so to speak, to the group, and still be accepted. 100% conformity is not required or expected, and I'm given some sense of latitude for making my own decisions, even when those decisions are not in full alignment with the group majority. If we don't feel some sense of autonomy in a group, our sense of belonging will be diminished. Now, in thinking about this, my mind immediately went to the body of Christ and the typical church experience, especially on a Sunday morning. I am absolutely convinced that there is no greater place on earth to gain a true, deep sense of competence, relatedness, and autonomy than in a faith community. But, and I say this with genuine sorrow, I have for many years been deeply concerned that our current models of church don't often allow for these basic needs to be satisfied. When our entire religious experience is reduced to sitting quietly in a pew, watching others display competence and autonomy, and then slipping out without ever having truly experienced connection, support, or solidarity well, our sense of belonging can be greatly diminished. And that really should not be the case ever. But I suppose that's a topic for some other time. So if loneliness is the big universal problem positioned at one end of the continuum, and the sense of belonging is the solution positioned at the opposite end of that continuum, how do we move from loneliness to belonging? On a practical level? How do we gain that sense of competence, relatedness, and autonomy that we've been talking about? Dr. Jeffrey L. Cohen says, quote, Whether we like it or not, we are molders of other people's psychological state. We have the ability to create connections in our day-to-day encounters in surprisingly powerful ways. To simply acknowledge to another person that they've been seen and heard can be powerful. Just learning how to create connections with others could make a tremendous difference in their lives and ours. Generally speaking, he's talking about friendships. And therein lies the challenge of satisfying this belonging hunger. Making and maintaining friendships. And that's going to be the third and final part of this little mini-series. For now, remember... A better mind always leads to a better life.